Welcome to another edition of the Haber Show podcast. This week's episode is a big one. We're going to do a last dance roundtable with the NBC Sports Chicago crew. Joining me is first our Bulls analyst, four-time NBA champion, MJ teammate Will Perdue. You've probably seen him on the series a bunch of times. Bleep, bleep, bleep. Um, Chicago Bulls analyst who happened to play against MJ in the playoffs during the last dance, Kendall Gill. And also our incredible Chicago Bulls insider, Casey Johnson, who's been covering the Bulls for over two decades. Go follow him at KCJHoop on Twitter. Uh, These guys, they do a recap on the Bulls Talk podcast immediately after the last dance. So definitely catch that on Sunday. Uh, And they were kind enough to join me here uh, on the Haver Show. So Will and Kendall share a bunch of MJ stories from behind the scenes. We also will get into what we want to see before the series concludes. And Casey wants more Scottie Pippen love. And I agree. Uh, lots of gambling stories, lots of competitive stories, lots of what it's like to go against MJ. Uh, so without further ado, let's get on with it. From Will, Kendall, and KC. All right. Welcome to a special edition of the Haber Show podcast slash uh, Bulls Talk collaboration with my guys in Chicago. I hope you guys are doing okay. And this this Last Dance documentary is giving all of us new life. Um, Will Perdue, Casey Johnson, and my man Kendall Gill, uh, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having us. Looking forward to it. Hey Kendall, um, you made an appearance on the uh, on the episode this over the weekend. Yeah, there you go. So, uh, <laughs> we all know about the dunk. Hey, listen, you know the only thing I'm, I'm I'm glad about is that it was quick. You know, I thought I thought it was going to be a prolonged slow motion thing. You know, so only a couple of people saw it. I, I, normally, people would be calling me like crazy, but you know, most people, I guess, they had gone to the refrigerator or something and missed it. <laughs> yeah, I don't think KC Will or I missed that one. We saw that. But but I don't you guys think you, knew it was coming. You guys knew it was coming. That's all. <laughs> I don't think that was the only time that I mean, I think you got Jordan a couple of times in that series, right? Oh yeah, yeah, but they're not gonna show that. Of course. You know, Mike was not gonna allow that. <laughs> I did a um I don't know if you saw this, but I did a a, stat, a Haberstat last week about Sherman Douglas. Did you see that, Kendall? No, I didn't see it. But... Oh man. So I looked this up. I found this new tool at basketballreference.com that got you got to look at Kendall Gill versus Will Purdue in their career. What was the win-loss record? I don't know. I should probably have brought oh. that up before the show. But you can look at any two players in NBA history and see what their win-loss record was against each other. So I was like, hmm, I wonder what Michael Jordan's best undefeated streak of his career was. And it turns out that Sherman Douglas played Michael Jordan 30 different times in his NBA career and he ended up with zero wins. Are you serious? <laughs> Michael Jordan went 30 and 0 against the general. I'm so sorry, Sherman, if you're watching this or listening to this or someone made mention of this, but it's true. I, I could not find another star player who finished their career with a mark undefeated with that many games. But in that series, that was the end of it. That was the end of his 30 games against Michael Jordan was with you on that Nets team. So Take me back to that point. Did you, did you have any uh, thinking that this would, I don't know, it was like the closest sweep ever. You guys went to overtime in game one. You guys were winning like game two until the very end. So 
it seems like in history it's three and zero sweep to the Nets, but really you guys had them for a while. We, you know, actually we were a very very good sparring partner. We got them ready for the fight because they thought that they were just going to go in there and walk all over us. And you know, I wasn't aware that Michael said that you know in order to lose a game against the Nets we have to be asleep. Well, they almost got they got they were napping in game one. Wait, wait, wait. You're telling me social media did not exist back then and you weren't no, aware of everything that Michael Jordan then. said? No, it, it, it didn't exist back then. But, uh, you know, we played – we took them to overtime in the first game and then we, we – I believe so. And then we took them – then we played them a really tough second game. Uh, third game was a little bit different. But, uh, you know, I could tell there was a distinct difference in game two as opposed to game one because, you know, they, they weren't taking us seriously in game one. Then we became serious. Now in game two, Michael totally changes his demeanor. And, you know, I could tell he was playing a lot harder. He, he was on his teammates a lot more because, you know, he realized, I mean, you know, they, they were, they were sleeping. Yeah, man, I, I don't know what um, I was expecting out of Coach Cal in that series, but what, what was behind the scenes? What was it like playing MJ in that, in that series with that crew? Sherman Douglas, I'm sure he didn't know that he was, he didn't, I don't think he knew definitively that he was 27-0 against MJ. No, he probably didn't know. But, I mean, it, it was fun. You know, we had won the last game of the season to get into the playoffs. Uh, we really weren't supposed to be there. So, yeah, I mean, it, it was, it was you know, we can't lose. It was, it, you know, it was let's just go out there and, and try our best. We had nothing to lose. Uh, Bulls were favored heavily, of course, uh, because it was the last dance. Everybody knew that this was probably going to be the Bulls' last run. So, I mean, we – we didn't care. I mean, we really didn't think that we were going to beat them, but we went out there and, you know, we played. And, then, you know, we, we uh, really gave them a run for their money in the first two games. Well, I got to say, um, the moment that I've been waiting for on this show, on this documentary, happened over the weekend. So in episode seven was the moment that Michael Jordan called timeout and was like, I'm out, break. And I had heard about this going into the, uh, the series, uh, Michael Jordan basically getting so emotional that he needed to take a break. Um, and apparently this happened, according to the director, apparently this happened within the first 45 minutes of taping. He got all worked up about this perception that he was not a nice guy and whether it was all worth it in the end. And I wanted to ask you guys, I wrote down the quote. He, was, he talked about being a tyrant as a teammate. And he stops and he says, Michael Jordan says, I don't have to do this. I'm only doing this because it is who I am. That's how I played the game. That was my mentality. If you don't want to play that way, don't play that way. And then he grabs his earpiece and says, break. And he gets all emotional. And Will, you've played with him so many years through those championships. Why do you think that moment just cut him to his core? Well, well, first of all, I think he released this because he really wanted people to understand who he was and what motivated him. A lot of this stuff and also the ability to control the content to a certain extent, but also try to be as realistic as possible. Um, I very rarely, even though I was his teammate, saw Michael Jordan the person. I saw Michael Jordan the competitor. Michael Jordan, the teammate, even on the plane, even on the bus, you know, he turned everything and anything possible into a competition. And that's just how he functioned. Whether you want to call that dysfunctional or not, that's just 
everybody's own opinion. But I learned that very quickly when I got to Chicago in the summer of 1988 as we got ready for training camp. Um, you know, and, and as I garnered his trust and his respect, then the curtain came down a little bit as far as Michael Jordan, the person. Because I think he saw vulnerability as a weakness. And we all know that actually vulnerability can be a strength if used properly. And that's where I think with Phil constantly just pounding on him, pounding on him, pounding on him, and he finally relented to the point where he's like, okay, I now understand I need these guys to help me accomplish what it is I want to accomplish. That's to be the greatest. He was already putting up good numbers. Listen, he dropped 63 to the Celtics and lost. But what was then now the narrative? Okay, he's great. Right. But is he actually making his teammates better? Is he actually winning? Or is he just putting up a bunch of, as we like to say, empty calories? And I think you saw that he, he realized that he had to get to the next level as far as a leader, but also as far as a player. And the only way to do that was to take his teammates with him. Yeah, but you, you straight up called him a on the show, which was great. I love it. it. Like, you played with Tim Duncan. You played with lots of NBA greats that didn't need to be a or a tyrant to win basketball games. So why – I mean, I guess that's the only mode that he knew. You know, it's kind of interesting. We actually had this conversation uh, Sunday night uh, after episode eight when Kendall and I and KC were doing a podcast for MSC Sports Chicago. And I had to kind of think about it a little more. Uh, I talked to my wife about it after the podcast. And she kind of said, well, there's, there's two routes to take. There's the carrot and there's the stick. We obviously had to be the stick. There was no carrot involved in this equation. And the one thing that I realized, and this, it took me a while when I was there to realize this, this is who Michael is. There's no changing him. I, I don't. I, I agree with my statement. That hasn't changed, you know, 30 years later. But that's just what he knew. And that's the approach that he decided to take, the, the tyrant. Um, you know, but I think what I also realized was as we looked around, and I learned this from John Paxson, I learned it from Bill Cartwright, there's something special here. This team is just different. Um, this is truly, there's, you know, we always talk about, is it a team a contender or a pretender? I realized we were just more than a contender. If we, A, figured out the triangle, B, continue to play defense the way Johnny Bach is putting us in a position to succeed with the Doberman defense, and also at the, and get this guy to buy in, and this guy being Michael Jordan, we can actually win. I know it was a three-year process to get past the Detroit Pistons. We never questioned whether we were better. Yeah. We, we can admit now that in 89, they were better than us. In 90, they weren't necessarily physically better than us or talented than us, but they were mentally stronger than us. It took those two years and losing those games to figure out how to get to where we were in 91 to get by them. And much like you talked to Kendall about – you know, they took him to the brink two of the three games. It was much harder than a 3-0 sweep. Our games against them in 91 were much harder than just somebody looking at it and go, oh, you guys killed them, 4-0. <laughs> we had to earn those games. We had to earn those wins. And 
I, honestly, I'd say we were as surprised as they were that we actually swept them. But you think about everything we accomplished in 91. We beat the bad boys who we had trouble beating. We swept them. And then we also, after losing that game against the Lakers in game one, we weren't favored to win the thing. We were supposed to, you know, get experience for the future to when we get back to the championship. And then we went four straight. It was just – that was a, a – a fantastic, but it was also, it was one of those things, everything went right yeah. for us to win that championship in 91. Kendall, like, what are you thinking as you're watching this, the way that episode ended with him getting emotional after the first half of the episode was about retiring, uh, his love for his father and what happened to him. Then it ends with that. So, I'm wondering when you watch that episode and the construction of that episode and the emotions that were flying through Michael Jordan from the retirement to winning the title again without his father. And then finally the, the, the ending where he, he gets asked about his perception of being a nice guy. What was going through your head when you saw that? Uh, that he was saying to the world, this is just who I am. This is me. And if you don't like it, don't play my game. You know, don't play in my sandbox. And I don't want to be criticized for being the way that I am. Just accept me for who I am. You know, and I, I think that he's had a tough time by seeing what his, his emotional reaction was last night. Uh, I think he's had a tough time with people understanding him. Yeah. You know. He doesn't, he, doesn't, he doesn't think that people understand him. And, and I think yesterday was just a culmination of this is, this is who I am, man, and just, just accept it. And, you know, that's basically it. I thought, I, I thought it was as simple as that. Have you, had, have you had a player that treated you that poorly before in your career? Oh, no. No. <laughs> no. Um, I remember Kevin Garnett tried it one time. You know, I remember his game in Atlanta – and, you know, me, me coming there, I noticed Kevin, you know, of course, Kevin was one of the top players in the league back then. And, uh, you know, he, I noticed that he, he just would talk to everybody any type of way that he wanted to. And one day we were playing in Atlanta and, and he said something, he said something to me in, at the, at the, um, in the middle of the game. And I just went ballistic on him right on the court, you know, and then he came to me after the play. He's like, I see I got to go at some guys differently than other guys. I was like, yeah, you do. <laughs> I said, because I can, I can play with you, but you got to respect me, you know, because I'm just like you, you know. And, uh, uh, you know, I never had a problem with him again, you know. Uh, so that was the only time that has ever happened. Yeah, uh, Casey, I'm, I'm – trying to think of what Michael Jordan if he's if he's worried about what people think of him or the idea that the idea of being a nice guy I think what he's thinking in that moment is in my opinion thinking about his father uh thinking about the legacy of his father what he instilled in in Michael and the competitive nature in Michael and wanting to beat everybody and dominate um and I think about what Michael would be in this era where I think like Kevin Durant jumps in people's DMs or or gets these burner accounts or anyone in the NBA now is to do what Michael was doing, which is to find little competitions or slights and almost make them up or just 
take a little bit of a slight and build it up into something big. And that's one of the things I, I take away from the last episode is how many slights that he just, like the LeBradford Smith story is amazing. We knew it going into this documentary, but the fact that, you know, years later, LeBradford Smith, after talking with Michael or reporters talking with Michael, they're like, yeah, just made it up. Um, the whole, you know, the, the fact that Michael Jordan just in, imagined some, some slights that people said to him. And Casey, it just, I don't know. Michael Jordan would be amazing in, in today's era, win multiple championships. But I, I just imagine if, if media was like it, today, it is today, what would Michael do? Well, I, yeah, I mean, Tom, I think two things, several things off that uh, that have jumped out by watching The Last Dance is not only have are the stylistic differences from the game back then to today jumped out, but also just the different age of the NBA. I mean, as you mentioned, there's so much player empowerment now. Uh, players change teams uh, to join their friends or form super teams or what have you. And I want to make clear, I have nothing against that. Every era is different. Every era is great for different reasons. But as as Kendall and Will and we all know, that didn't exist back then. You went through teams and you didn't change teams. You went through them. The Pistons went through the Celtics. The Bulls went through the Pistons. And, you know, Michael took great relish in, in, in doing that. Um, you know, Michael is obviously so great. He would be fantastic in whatever era. But, um, you know, I think he, he fit the era that he was in. And, and just one more thing when you say, like, you know, whether or not he's nice or not. Other than Will's fantastic line from last night, I thought B.J. Armstrong low-key had a, one of the best lines. You know, he said he, he couldn't be nice. That's just not how he was wired to. Yeah. You know, he, he couldn't be nice to be who he is. And that, to me, is the most – obviously the compelling and best part about this documentary is he's, he's showing us what we already all already knew, but some, some generation didn't know to this extent who he really is. We last saw it this spectacularly and this publicly in his hall of fame speech in 09. Um, but you know, it's been a while since, since we've been reminded of, of who Michael Jordan is. And I don't know, I, I, I didn't play for the bulls. I've just covered him for a long time, but Seems like the end justify the means here to me. I mean, six oh, games yeah. are in those rafters. Uh, you you said it. I think in the episode, um, you were like, "Yeah, that's just you, you needed will time to just reflect back and realize that's how he needed to be to get the most out of his teammates. It worked." But how many teammates did he actually fight in practice? You you self included, right? Yep. Steve Kerr, but here's the thing, and that's one of the things that Michael talked about also. We had altercations. I don't call them fights. Okay. We had altercations all the time. I define an NBA fight as is no th- punches are thrown until somebody gets in between and you reach around a guy and try to throw a chip <laughs> shot. You know, it's pushing, shoving, getting in guys' faces, pointing fingers, whatever you want to call it. But that was constant with us. Because I always try to tell people you had 12 guys. You only had five starters. You had the other seven guys that were trying to get those other five guys' positions. You know, we felt like the guys coming off the bench deserved more minutes. Um, you know, we were out there, and, and BJ and I have talked about this, doing podcasts together and stuff. You can't understand the, the thrill, especially in practice, when the second team would beat the first team, how pissed off MJ would get, and he would go at his teammates. And a couple times, because he thought he was getting cheated by Jimmy Clemens and and uh, Tex Winter, because he thought the whistles were going in favor of the second team, he just walked out of practice. <laughs> he basically just said, if you're not going to allow me to win, 
or give me an opportunity to win, then I'm not even going to play and just kick open the doors at the multiplex and walk out or walk off the floor at the Verno Center. Because, I mean, look, literally he's going to take every challenge known to man, but yet at the end of the day, if he knows, regardless of what the challenge is, I can't win, then he, he didn't want anything to do with it. But that's just how competitive he was, even in practice in a game where we played the five by ones in half court. It's just I have to be in a position to where you're going to allow me to win because I know how good I am, and I am 99.9% sure that my team is going to win. And that one time, I think, and I think we actually, in, in one week one time, we beat him two days in a row. And he was livid to the point where he was just dressing down all the other guys about how embarrassing it was the second unit to beat the first unit. And I would, we were just all laughing and high-fiving and running around the gym having a good time. And he was – it was almost like the, the tables were flipped and the first unit was down running the other team's plays to bring them to us so we could work on our defense. It was, I mean, that's, that's one of those moments, those type of things you always remember because it happens so infrequently. There was another big thing in the uh... – Doc last night um, on Sunday night where we basically got to see the media presence for the I'm back and the media presence at baseball. Um, I want to ask each of you, what was your remembering? What was your memory of him of finding out that Michael Jordan was retiring, that he was leaving the game uh, in 93? Well, well, mine, I can't, I can't say it on the podcast, but mine was like, God, because <laughs> I had just signed with the Seattle Supersonics a couple weeks before that. Yes. And I really didn't, I really didn't want to sign with the Seattle Supersonics. <laughs> so, uh, you know, it's... Wait, and, and why? They, what? All, what? Listen, all due respect to the people in Seattle. Seattle's a wonderful city. The organization was great. The players there were great. I just really did not want to go uh, to Seattle. I really wanted to go, go back to Charlotte or go to another team uh, back east. Um, and when I signed the contract, it was only a couple of weeks later that, uh, that Michael retired. I was like, I mean, I could have I just slid right into playing with, for, with, for the Bulls and playing with Will and playing in the triangle offense because they needed a two-guard at that time. So oh. that's, that, I, I, was, I was pissed, actually. <laughs> Will, you could have been teammates. And yeah. I think you could have – listen – the one thing I've learned working with Kendall, he believed in the triangle, and he would have fit right in. I mean, he would have been a Tex winner protege. Him and Tex yeah. would have been watching film all the time, sitting together on the plane. But, you know, we know what Kendall's talent sets are, so he would have fit in well. But I was in a situation where I didn't go to the press conference. Um, you know, we had a text that went around saying, hey, this is what's going to happen. Michael's holding the press conference. You can come. You don't have to come. Some guys – you know, showed up, but there was so much media, they turned around and went home. You know, you saw Bill, Bill stayed, BJ stayed, Scotty stayed. But I was just watching on TV. I was literally in disbelief. I didn't want to believe it. And until he actually uttered those words, and I'm really? watching at home, and you hear – and I loved how they used the, the uh, line last night from Mark Greco. Here he comes. Here he comes. He's coming to the table. Here he comes. Here he comes. <laughs> I was like – I specifically remember going – holy crap, this is really going to happen. He's really going to retire. There's no other reason that they're having this press conference. This isn't a fluke. So you didn't, you didn't, you didn't go out of spite or you didn't go because you didn't care. Part of you was just like, I don't, I don't really think this is going to happen. You know, I, there was disbelief. 
But there was also when those guys were, you know, I was on the fence. Those guys were texting about how much media was. Nobody knew that there would, there would be so much media there. They figured the local guys would be there. They figured the local guys would be there for the national guys. I mean, people flew in from all over the world for this. It was un, they said it was a madhouse, that it was just out of control. And I just decided, you know what? It's live on television. I'm going to sit right here, and I think I already know what the outcome is, even though I really don't want to believe it. But I also didn't want to have people see the dejection on my face when he made it official. Yeah, KC, you must have been just like floored because you're you're in the middle of it, right? You're 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 sitting there in the media firestorm and just like this is, I mean, I can't even imagine what my, what LeBron James, if in the peak of his powers, is like, yep, I'm gonna go play for the Cleveland Browns, tight end. Like, it'd be nuts. Yeah, yeah. That that predates my time on the beat. I I I was around for the second three Pete. So I was I was working for the Chicago yeah. Tribune at the time, uh, covering high school sports uh, and working the copy desk. But I remember the night that the, the story actually broke the night before when he was at the White Sox playoff game yeah. on the first pitch. Yeah. Uh, Mike Monroe from the Denver Post. They always look at things from a journalism standpoint, and Mike Monroe <laughs> from the Denver Post uh, broke the story, and then some people locally got it confirmed that night. And what Will's talking about, yeah, that mob scene at the Berto Center the next morning. I mean, Tom Brokaw is there. I mean, come on. That just tells you all you need to know right there. This was a story of world importance. Yeah, I can't – I don't think people understand how hard it is to – like, the idea of batting 202 after not playing for 17 years. Like, Kendall, you, you've played a bunch of sports in your life. Like, the idea of – of, of leaving basketball and going to play minor league baseball, go to double A because the media firestorm is so big. They can't contain it in a single A or rookie league. Like uh, Jerry Reinsdorf said on the, on the episode, like I feel like hitting any home runs or having any doubles, having 50 RBIs in your first minor league season after being away from the game for 17 years. I think that's amazing. Yeah. It's amazing. Especially in double A ball hitting 202. Uh, that's crazy. And, and driving in 50 runs. Uh, and, you know, I can tell you from my experience going to box straight from basketball yes. that those guys that I sparred with, that, that uh, I got into the ring with, they did not take it easy on me. They wanted to run me out of that gym, you know, to show me that you don't belong here. And I guarantee you that's the same thing Michael went up against when he was facing double-A pitching. Because there's a theory out there that they were taking it easy on him, that they were just throwing it right yeah. down the pipe for him. Because it's Michael no. Jordan. No, they're not. No, I mean, could you, you, I'd rather say, hey, I struck Michael Jordan. That's what I'm saying. Get off of me, you know? So I, I can remember the big unit saying, uh, when Michael came back, saying that uh, wait till he faces my chin music. You know, <laughs> I can remember him saying that, you know, in an article. And so, so those guys want to prove, yo, you, you, you can't come into our gym. So that's what, what made it amazing that he was able to have success. And you heard Reinsdorf say last night that eventually he would have become a major league baseball player. I'm convinced of it. Like if he, if he, uh, if he played for a few more years, he didn't have any, any lead up into that. Like the fact, it just boggles my, it's one of the most, ridiculous sports achievements of my career that a guy could go just cold into a, another sport and be able to have half decent success at a, yeah. at a pro level. It's insane. It shows you what type of athlete he was. 
Yeah. Um, so you're watching that, Will. You're watching that like what? Like, are you amused by it? Are you like, Michael, come back already? Like, what are you thinking when you see him in the Birmingham Barons by my guy, Terry Francona? You know, I was, you know, after I got past the, the shock of him retiring and then going in, you know, then learning he's going into baseball, you know, I was hoping that he would succeed. I was thinking about, I mean, just, just the, the guts that it took to even try to do that. Yeah. <laughs> because I'm not sure that technically there's a lot of people outside of his inner circle that really wanted him to succeed. Um, you know, I was doing a thing uh, on Monday today with uh, Dan Bernstein doing local radio. And he was, a, you know, back in the day, he covered a lot of minor league sports um, on the East Coast. And he talked about how there were a lot of players in minor league baseball that, A, thought that was unfair. They've been busting their ass in rookie ball and single A ball, you know, trying to live the dream. And this guy gets to start out in double A. But I always was rooting for him to succeed. And, you know, I was very fortunate. I actually went and saw him play live in person when the Birmingham Barons came to play the Nashville Sounds in Nashville, watched them play a doubleheader. And it was kind of interesting to hear. Uh, Are you heckling? Uh, no. So it was kind of interesting the way they did it was he was so popular at the minor league level for every game on the road, they shut down the right field bleachers behind him. And then from first base on to the end of the uh, field, they didn't allow people to sit in those two areas. So I actually was sitting out there by my, with my wife at the time, just the two of us, no, I was like Charlie Sheen when he bought all the left field seats <laughs> to try to catch a home run ball. Yes. <laughs> Watching him play right field. And it was a doubleheader. I went and talked to him in between, and I could already see the difference in him from a person about just how he kind of looked at life. You know, he was at ease, quite honestly. Yeah, that's what But he also went, if I, I remember, he went one for six or one for seven, but his one hit was a home run. And that was after now, you know, they talk about an – and uh, the last dance, he had a 13-game hitting streak. Yes. And Hereniak kept talking about, when is it going to happen? When is it going to happen? And then all of a sudden, there's your scene uh, from Major League, you know, Serrano. <laughs> all of a sudden, just strikeout, strikeout. I mean, literally, I watched – I think I, – I can't remember the kid. I mean, this – if I remember correctly, there was a kid on the mound. I mean, he wasn't – he looked like he was 12 years old. He literally threw three pitches, and Michael was back in the dugout. Wait, you're telling me – so they closed off the right side of the field because they didn't want people to get close to Michael? Why? I don't know if people at other – well, that's what they did in Nashville. Now, I don't know if people were jumping out of the stands and running onto the field, if it was a security issue or whatever. But for that day when they played that doubleheader, there was nobody in the right field bleachers from about, you know, uh, right center to the foul pole, and then there was nobody down the right field line past first base to the fence. They wouldn't allow – and they also cordoned it off on the walkway so that people couldn't walk back behind there as well. They just – they allowed me to go sit over there, and then I also went and talked to him in the dugout in between, but it was – you know, that was the interesting thing you also heard from Kraus. If he started at any other level, they didn't have the necessary media uh, facilities to handle what he was doing. So that's why he started in double A, according to Jerry. 
Yeah, KC, you've been sharing excerpts from uh, for an unpublished autobiography from Jerry Krause. What do you think he would bring to this documentary? Well, I heard the filmmaker uh, talking about how one thing he wanted to talk to him about is just why did he seem so eager to to put, move this along? I mean, you know, I think it's been unfairly cast that Jerry Krause is the sole reason why the dynasty broke up. There's obviously multiple, multiple reasons why it happened. All dynasties come to an end. Um, you know, and, and we all have bosses. Uh, Jerry Krause reported to Jerry Reinsdorf. He's the owner of the Bulls. So uh, Jerry Reinsdorf made it clear that if Phil wanted to, he could come back for 98, 99. And Phil had this theory that seven years was the limit for a team and he stayed nine in Chicago. So there are multiple reasons. We don't need to break into all that. But as far as Jerry, you know, I just wanted to give um, – you know, his voice. I'm not trying to settle scores or. Yes, you are. No, 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 no. It's it really, it's, there, there's, there is some, his family was very gracious to, to, to give me this. I got very close to Jerry the last 10 years of his life after I stopped covering him. Um, and his family was very gracious to give us these writings to just, just have his presence out there. Um, but these writings are steering to the high road, you know, because that's where his family wants them right now. And I think that's fine. I just wanted his voice to be present. I mean, we're not trying to settle scores or say who's right or who's wrong. Um, but I do know that the filmmakers obviously would have liked to talk to Jerry because he's a significant part of this whole story. I would just love to see Michael Jordan's reactions to Jerry's comments. With the <laughs> yeah. Every single, every single, um, every single, shot across the bow that goes at Michael Jordan. He's going to, he's watching them on the iPad. And it's created in a wonderful moment. We got one with Gary Payton. Yeah. I, I will say real quick. Uh, and I mean, this doesn't add too much to the conversation, but you know, when, when uh, Jerry passed in 2017, the first thing I did was try to get a hold of a statement from Michael and, and, you know, his, his longtime spokesperson, Estee Portnoy shot one right away. It was, you know, said thank you for letting us know Michael's, you know, please tell the family that Michael passed as long as condolences. I mean, I'm just acknowledging that Michael Jordan's a human being. I mean, but my point, you know, the, the battles that he had with Jerry were legit. And, you know, there was a lot of, uh, you know, uh, friction at times between their relationship. But I also, I would love to ask Michael this. I mean, he doesn't do interviews anymore, but now that he has been an executive, I wonder if he has a greater appreciation for Jerry Krause because yeah. it's not an easy job. He has to. He has to, for sure. Um, I think, you know, a lot of people point to the sustainability of, of winning dynasties. It's not easy. You look at Kevin Durant and Stephen Curry, and I, I think to myself, you know, <clears throat> the idea that winning is going to solve any or, or fill any sort of void in your life, um, I think is, is a lesson not just for, for NBA players, but I think for everybody is expecting that one job career change or one new team or one new setting is going to fill and make you happy. And I think Kendall, when, when you watch this, this episode or the last couple episodes, you really got to see that, um, you know, a lot of this vindictiveness with other teammates, it seemed like it came from somewhere that, uh, you know, that's the, what he called winning has a price. Um, when you look back on your career, was the happiest you were playing basketball when you were winning or was it these relationships that you had with different people, uh, lasting relationships over the years that you point to your happiness? Like as an NBA, a pro player, was it always so aligned that the happier you were, the more winning 
that was coming with you? Um, not, not necessarily. I mean, all of us love to win. You know, I, I, I hate to lose. I wish I had have, have signed with the Los Angeles Lakers when I had opportunity because I would, I would have been an NBA champion. You know, I would have experienced what Will uh, experienced. Um, but, you know, when you get older in life, you, you start to lose things. Okay, you, whether it be our loved ones or, or monetarily you lose things. And then you realize it, that when you look back on this, it, the experiences that you cherish the most. You know, I, I, I cherish my experiences with my flying Illini teammates when we went to the Final Four. You know, we, we didn't win a national championship. But that moment when we beat Syracuse was the happiest moment I've ever had in basketball, never to be duplicated. You know, I have that experience with me for the rest of my life. You know, um, <laughs> I, I, I'll always tease it. Like guys on, guys on Twitter, sometimes they'll tease it. Like I'll make a comment. They'll go like, you never won a championship. And I was like, oh, yes, I did. I won five 40 and over championships and uh, four 50 and over championships. <laughs> so don't say that crap to me. What now? Yeah, <laughs> I'm, I'm probably I'm probably the most decorated guy in Chicago as championships are concerned. But um, you know, it's I, I believe I believe yes, you have to win uh, because that's that's what's necessary in order to be successful. In order to put food on the table, you got to win. Um, but I wouldn't say it's the be all and end all for, for, for me. It's the, it's the experiences because when I'm laying on my deathbed, I'm not going to be worried about championships I won. I'm going to be worried about the, uh, thinking about the experiences that I've had throughout my life. And Tom, I'll take it one step farther. Um, you know, I've been fortunate enough to win four of them. And a lot of that just happens to be at the, being at the right place at the right time. And the two that I hold to the highest standard are my two favorite. Uh, first and foremost was 91 because, you know, I, I talk about this all the time. Everybody sees the emotion of Michael Jordan hugging the trophy, weeping, his father's next to him. You know, he finally reached the mountaintop. But what people don't talk about is, you know, John Paxson was doing the same thing. Bill Cartwright was doing the same thing. Established mm -hmm. veterans who had dealt with uh, – you know, adversity throughout their career in one way or another. Bill Cartwright with the injuries, um, you know, getting traded to Chicago to give himself an opportunity. I asked him, was there any of your Knicks teams that had an opportunity to, to win a championship? He goes, yeah, but then Bernard King got hurt. I got hurt. You know, there's certain things that you just can't control that will prevent you from winning a championship that are beyond, you know, your control. There's nothing you can do. You just put yourself out there and try to do the best you can. Or, or Sam Cassell pulls his groin, right, Kendall? Or, like, Chris Gatling gets sick or, or Keith Van Horn gets sick, and you could have won that series in 98. I doubt it, but, yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm really 91, 91, and what else? And, but it was the – as Kendall talked about, it was the relationships <laughs> that I made with that team, first and foremost, that made it so special for me. Because I didn't necessarily play a lot. I was – was still a younger guy. It was only my third year in the league. But the second one is the, the one I won with the Spurs in 99 because that was a totally different team with a totally different culture. You know, the Bulls' approach was more businesslike. And I still have, as I talk about, great friends from that team today. But 
the one when I won with the, the Spurs in 99 was much more enjoyable because it was a it was a more of a family culture we spent a lot of time together on the floor off the floor on the road at home you know and that started with Greg Popovich we didn't have a Michael Jordan we had you know top 50 player in David Robinson we had one of the best all-time players in Tim Duncan a, a multi-time all-star in Sean Elliott but we didn't have a Michael Jordan with you know the the approach that Michael had win all be all win at all costs we wanted to win and I was I thought I played a role from sharing a lot of that stuff I learned from the Bulls to helping these guys but also did Mario Ellie who came from the Houston Rockets and yep. won a championship but it was just two different approaches you know that took two different paths to get to a championship but it was the family atmosphere in San Antonio that made that one so much more enjoyable to be a part of that with a group that actually took a different approach than the Bulls took. Will, what about that following season where Michael's in Birmingham? What was that season? Was it because Scotty, what seemed so interesting to me in that episode was Scotty at, at the beginning of the season, or at least when they were narrating the beginning of the season, was saying, hey, uh, a lot more players got the ball, a lot more guys yep. got shots. Uh, There's kind of the tension got cut out of the room. Um, we had nobody yelling at us. And it seemed like more fun. It seemed like more, more fun to go play basketball. But then the juxtaposition of him not playing team basketball, not uh, <laughs> wanting Tony Kukoc to get the shot at the end, I thought that was fascinating. So what was that season like? And without Michael Jordan there, still with the Bulls, still with Phil Jackson, still with Scotty, uh, what was that like with that season? Well, let me preface my answer by saying, you know, that was the year I was hurt a little bit, got a virus, uh, had some injuries, didn't necessarily play a lot, was not on that playoff roster, but was right there experiencing with everybody. And Scotty was right. I mean, guys had no choice but now to step up. We had to put ourselves in a position to where, you know, we had to fully rely and trust the triangle, but also, you know, fully rely on each other. The trust factor that we as a team are doing anything and everything to put ourselves in a position to succeed that was an accountability on the on where everybody had to be accountable for themselves but hold everybody else accountable we didn't have one individual to do that like Michael you heard Scotty talk about we needed that bad guy okay now the, the bad guy per se is gone how do you maintain that form of that level of excellence well everybody now has to step up to the plate and basically play their best. So whatever is required of you as an individual, whether you know it's practice, what it, you know, getting up extra shots, whatever you do at home to eliminate the distractions, you know, it's one of those things that you had to be ready to play and bring your A game every night. With Michael, you'd get away without bringing your A game. When Michael was gone, <laughs> was margin of error a little bit. Yes, we had no margin of error. So the you know, we still won 55 games, and as good as Scotty was, he still wasn't Michael Jordan. So we had to rely on that offense to get ourselves shots. Now, the area where we could really make up for, you know, when the offense got bogged down was on the defensive end. We still had that same fight. We still had Johnny Bach. We still had the same schemes. But it was it, – it, you're exactly right. It was different. That was enjoyable. But ultimately, you know, the season came down with a crashing thud because we just – you know, we didn't get to where we wanted to get uh, and, you know, lost in the playoffs. And that 
at this level, you realize as much as it's a game, at the end of the day, it's a business. And it, when it was all said and done, we failed. So nobody got called a on that team, though. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think uh, – I think Phil kind of curtailed that a little bit. He didn't think anybody okay. deserved that respect like Michael got to use that. <laughs> All right, let's take a quick break to hear about a podcast that should be in your rotation. Hey, this is Jason Goff, host of the Bulls Talk Podcast, and everybody is talking about Michael Jordan and the last dance, but nobody breaks it down better than former Bull Kendall Gill, longtime Bulls insider Casey Johnson, and Bulls outsider Big Dave Watts. I can understand why Michael was upset at Scotty because this was it for them. So why is he doing this? And we are trying to win a championship. Subscribe to Bulls Talk right now to get recap podcasts automatically downloaded for free after every episode of The Last Dance. Now, back to the conversation. Cigar smoking in the locker room. All, that, that happened all the time with him? Because that scene of him holding the bat and just smoking the cigar, I mean, that yeah, was now that classic. scene of him holding the bat, that's the Birdo Center. That's not at uh, the United Center. Or that's not at the old stadium. That's, that's during practice one day. You know, he's just sitting in the Birdo Center – you know, he's not smoking it. He's chomping on it. Ron Harper's there. Most of the other guys are sitting there. But, you know, here's the thing. MJ very rarely did that, hung around. I mean, he would show – you know, he would get his work done at home because he had his own private gym, the whole thing, and then get in the car. And then – because that was the thing. We used to always give him a hard time about, you know, when he first started committing himself to lifting weights, he came in and worked out with us. So us meaning the rest of the team with Al Vermeil and Eric Allen and Scotty Pippen and Horace Grant, but guys that had already been committed to this program of strength, quickness, and explosiveness doing Olympic lifts. And all of a sudden, he couldn't bench as much as some guys. He couldn't squat as much as some guys. He couldn't clean as much as some guys. All of a sudden, he stopped coming. But he didn't <laughs> stop working out. He had Tim Grover. He was doing. He was now doing it on his own. Um, hey, how about he Tim getting emotional, Kendall? Yeah, yeah, he 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 did get emotional. You know, Tim Tim trained me for a couple of years too during during my NBA career, and uh, you know I've never seen him get emotional, not one bit. And last night I could see, I heard the shakiness in his voice and everything. And it was, I mean, that was another part that I was surprised by. You know, because I Tim is always you know a straight shooter, no emotion, all business. But yesterday you could hear the crack in his voice, man. You know. Is, is incredible. Well, one thing, one thing I want do you guys, because I I'm I show my my son videos of Michael and Kobe. Um, Will it appears to me that you know Kobe like he has the thing where he woke up at three thirty in the morning, he went to the gym at from four to six, came back and took a break, went back to the gym from nine to eleven, came back and went back from two to four, then went back at seven to nine. It seemed like Michael just showed up. You know, well, and Michael, I think that's the difference. I mean, I know he worked, but to show you how great Michael was, it took Kobe working all day, every day, just to be even close to Michael Jordan. And that was the other thing, Kendall. You're you're exactly right. That's where it appeared. But you know, when you talk to his people, he spent a, he invested a lot of time, but honestly, not as much as Kobe. You know, like I said, he. He did a lot of stuff behind closed doors because he didn't want people to see him when he – that was the thing. I never saw Michael, like, 
come to the Birdo Center on an off day. Doesn't mean he didn't, but I didn't see him come on an off day and get work in, get individual work. Mm-hmm. He always had – he always did that behind closed doors. You know, we used to play a lot of pickup games. Uh, you know, practice back then used to always start the first Friday in October. We used to lot, play a lot of pickup games in uh, September. Guys would start rolling back into town, the ones that didn't stay throughout the year. And then we would have some really good five-on-five pickup games. We'd lift weights, then do individual work, then play five-on-five. Well, because he didn't lift weights with us, a lot of time he wasn't there for the individual work, but he occasionally would show up for the five-on-five games. I always wondered where he got his work in. You know, it's like when he first came back, we had heard rumors that he was down at uh, Moody Bible getting work in behind closed doors, mm. you know, testing himself. Where was he? Where did he think he was? You know, all these rumors were – were, it wasn't like he came in and he said, all right, guys, I need you to help me get into shape. He had been working out on his own. It, I, I think this whole thing with him and BJ just randomly meeting at Baker Square and like, hey, come to practice. <laughs> I, 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 think, yeah. I think there might have been uh, – there, I think there's something going on here. There might have been a plan here. This whole thing was a setup. <laughs> <laughs> but he came back – he came back to win a championship that year. He thought he could come back and win. Oh, there's no doubt about it. I think he fully felt that with, you know, what was it? What was it, Casey, about four weeks? Came back March uh, 18th. So, yeah, about four weeks, yeah. Basically, he felt like in that four weeks, yeah, he mapped regardless that of how he played during that four-week period, that he could get back to the Mike, not necessarily the Michael of old, but to get back to where Michael enough could make up for whatever it was that team was lacking to not only get past the Orlando Magic, but any other team in the Eastern Conference to get back to the finals. And then I fully believe that he felt that, okay, because of my mental toughness now, I can will this team to another championship. But he even admitted in the, in, uh, the document that he's just like four weeks wasn't enough. And he no. still averaged 31 per game in the playoffs. So wow. I, would, I would say that was also when he became, for a short period of time, a volume shooter. <laughs> <laughs> Let's say he broke, he broke out of the triangle offense quite a bit. Yeah, he <laughs> shot 48% that postseason and averaged 31. If that's what it takes to be a volume shooter, man, I'm, sign me up. Yeah, you're all for it. So, um, the, the, Will, you talked earlier in the, in the documentary about how he would try to bet people just – you bet you or, or gamble with you just to have your money in his pocket. And I wanted you to elaborate – more about that like what is the scene when he's on the plane when he tries to step up to will purdue and is like let's play blackjack or something like that well, how does it was that me. happen it was uh the guys that sat up front were john paxson me bill cartwright bj armstrong stacy king uh depending on how many other guys rolled through scott williams and, and were you uh, guys considered like the choir boys compared to the guys in the back <laughs> <laughs> well it was always scotty uh, Horace, then Horace got replaced by Ron Harper, and then they always had a pawn, somebody that they would basically just steal, basically just take their money. I mean, you, you might as well just turn that person upside down and take all the cash out of their pockets. And it, it's just, you know, I think it was Scott Burrell, it was Jack Haley early on. I, you know, if you were dumb enough to go back there, they were going to get you. Because I used to always talk about how when we'd leave, we had to walk out the back of the plane, right, and go down the the back of the plane out to the bus and when you walk by their little suite back there their cards would be everywhere and you'd look around and be like 
you know there's some cheating going on back here. Yeah. This, this isn't all above board, but, you know, these long flights sometimes, the other guys would sit up front. Some of you like, hey, you got a deck of cards? You'd be like, yeah. All right, well, let's play blackjack. We'll make it interesting. A dollar a hand. All right? And then as you go through the deck one time, then that guy's done being the bank, and you pass it to the next guy, and then he becomes the bank. And then that's when I talk about the – the perception of Michael always being a, you know, above board, being in a, a good mood. He would come up, come up front because he would get wind of what's going on up there. And he'd come up there with a little swagger and be like, yo, so what are you guys doing? Blackjack. And then he'd, you know, mind if I play. And like I said, BJ would be like, what we at? Why do you care about playing with us, man? Just go to the back of the plane and play your big games. And that's when he made the comment about, I want to say I have your money in my pocket because he's like, listen, I've already taken care of these guys in the back. I've got thousands of their dollars. That doesn't interest me. What I don't have is your money, your money, your money, your money. But this is now my opportunity because I know you guys won't play in the big money games. This, I, I get, as I always say, okay, I'm going to take myself down to your level and take <laughs> your money at, at, at something you feel comfortable at. I well, know you feel got- comfortable. What's that? He is God. Yeah, as he said. (laughs) But he would basically then be like, okay. And then you would see the look, like the fact that we actually agreed to allow him to play with us, it was almost like he was in disbelief. He was like, I mean, he immediately, he didn't even take a chair. He sat on the floor. No. Like like he was rolling dice. He literally (laughs) just was like, awesome. Thank you. And then he would immediately – uh, who was the rookie then? Was it uh, KC? Was it Corey Alexander? Uh, which year? 97, 98? Or? No. No, no. In the early early years. From uh, where did he, did he play? Not Oklahoma. Where did Corey – was it Corey Alexander came in? He was a rookie? Yeah. Is that right? From, from, he's from Virginia. No, no, no. That's, that's who I played with in San Antonio. Corey, maybe Oklahoma State. But it, the rookie Stacey that King? year – no, no Stacy was playing with us. <laughs> Don't ever say that to Stacy. <laughs> but he basically would. We had run rookie that year, and he turned around and he goes, "Rookie!" Yells it down to the end of the plane. Comes running up and he goes, "I got two decks of cards." And he turned around and he goes, "You guys don't mind if I'm the bank full time, do you?" Or like, you do whatever you want. Here's one deck. While we're playing with this deck, you you shuffle, and then as soon as this deck's out, give me the shuffle deck, and I'll give you the other one back. And then he was like doing this. And then, you know, you could tell as he wins a little money, he's like, even though I'm the bank, can we up it to $2? And we're like, no, it's a $1 game. The only time you ever double down is if you want to split. And anytime anybody got two of anything, he'd be like, you need to split that. You need to split that. Because <laughs> he's just looking to get money. But that's just how he would take and make anything and everything a competition. And it just – that was one of those things that you realized that, and I say this, I don't think you had a gambling problem. You had a competition problem. You're just like, man, you just, you always want to have the upper hand on everybody at all times. Kendall, you were, uh, you were exposed to his, his competitive nature with cards. Yeah. Oh yeah. So, I mean, you know, one, one night he came over to my house and just, you know, I, I was, I was beating him, him and his friend Adolf Shiver. Um, at well, he the time, came to your ha- how old are you at this point? Paint the picture. <clears throat> I am, I am uh, probably 22, 23. And, um, you know, he calls you he, up. 
No, no, no. He, he comes into town to visit his parents, and his best friend Adolf picks him up at the airport, and they just drop by my house, you know. And all of a sudden, the car game breaks out, and seven hours later, he's still there, trying to win his money back. And I and I said this on the podcast the other yeah. day. I was I was I was actually just ready for him to go, you know, go home, you know, because yeah, yeah, it's Michael Jordan and everything, but you know. Uh, after a while, you just you just you just ready to stop playing cards. But you know, like Magic Johnson said, was that the always, house on cribs? No, not the house on cribs. No, no, no. <laughs> not the house on cribs, man. <laughs> but he goes one more hour, one more hour. You know, we're we're in Charlotte, and you know, and now it's getting to four, five in the morning. I'm thinking, okay, he's not gonna last this long, but he still hasn't won his money back yet, all of it. So he continues to gamble until he wins most of it back. And, you know, then finally gets up, leaves. And it's like he was fresh. You know, I, I think the guy's a vampire, actually. You know, a vampire that can walk outside in the daylight. Because I've never seen anybody play cards that long and be that fresh and ready to go in the morning. Hence the, hence the 36 holes he plays before games, Will, and then goes out and scores 50. <laughs> well, I had uh, – when I got traded to uh, San Antonio, Kendall – and I meet David, the first thing he says to me is he goes, Michael Jordan's got to deal with the devil. <laughs> I'm like, what? He goes, I played on the dream team. He goes, this was, our, this was their schedule in Monaco, and I tried to keep up. And the one person that did keep up was Chuck Daly. <laughs> Practice, straight to the golf course, straight to uh, – because they're in Monaco. Straight to the casino till all hours in the morning, shower, rinse, repeat, no sleep. <laughs> David said he tried to keep up, and eventually he just said, I couldn't do it. He said, what people don't realize is those practices were so competitive that guys constantly – he said it was some of the best practices that I've ever been a part of because not only just the talent, but Michael, Magic, guys just talking so much trash, constantly going at each other. Play again, play again. And then basically, you know, you're, as he said, I'm exhausted. But as Kendall said, you get back to the hotel and MJ's like, all right, let's go. We're going to the golf course. And you're just like, you know, he said, yeah. literally, you're just like drunk with exhaustion. You'd be like, all right, man, I'll meet you downstairs in 30 minutes. And you're like finding a way to get yourself motivated. But Michael, like Kendall said, he's just like, ain't nothing but a thing. Let's go. 36, yeah. now straight to play, you know, Cards all night and then back to practice? I don't and, – and, and, you know, that, 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 this is the thing. And I, I agree with you, Casey, what you said the other day on the podcast. The Bulls won exactly how many championships they were supposed to win, six. After watching this docuseries or whatever you want to call it, the tension, the emotional um, strain, uh, the physical strain, I just don't see how they could have won anymore, you know. I can't see it, you know, and, and Michael, because of his lifestyle, you know, burning the candle at both ends, you know, playing golf all the time and going hard at basketball all the time, talking stuff to people all the time, making up challenges in your mind all the time, that takes energy. And eventually you burn yourself out. Yeah, I was thinking when he was doing the Space Jam shoot, he was taught like it was Tim Grover getting choked up about how hard he wanted to win. And then it goes like straight into Space Jam. And I was like, 
wait, we were just talking about how he did everything he needed to do to win or to, to get over the hump. And now he's do- shooting a movie. And then three seconds later, they built a dome <laughs> so that he could play all the time when he was off the set. Yeah, I don't know how he did it. And, and you know, Casey said the other day that they won six championships. That's exactly how many they were supposed to win. But, you know, the interesting thing is, Kendall, on top of that, he wasn't just playing. He was scouting guys. He, mm. was, he was playing against them, but up here thinking about what it is they were doing, their strengths, their weaknesses. You know, the interesting part was, I remember when that happened, the word got out. I mean, guys were flying in from all over the country just to participate in those pickup games because of how competitive they were. It was, you know, part of it was, hey, I'm going to play with Michael Jordan. But what they didn't realize is Michael opened the door to all comers because that was the greatest scouting video that he ever had was up here playing with these guys, but also watching them at the same time. We got, we got two episodes left of the series. I'm wondering, each of you, uh, we'll start with you, Casey, anything that you can't wait to see them get into or anything that's left that you're like, huh, I hope they get into this in 9 and 10. Can't wait to I see I personally it. think Scottie Pippen needs to be uh, propped up a little bit more. I mean, uh, look, I'm not being critical of the filmmakers. We need to see the full, whole full narrative arc. And also, this is essentially a Michael Jordan documentary. And that's fine. God bless him. I mean, he doesn't talk much. And if that's the trade-off we need to get for lack of some balance, uh, it's awesome to see Mike in front of the camera again and spilling his guts. So that's fantastic. However, through eight episodes, I personally have been disappointed with how Scotty, uh, basically the three major storylines for Scotty have all been negative. There was the dissatisfaction over his contract, which, by the way, he signed. Uh, 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 the, the decision to, to delay his surgery before the 97-98 uh, season and how much that bothered Michael Jordan. And then the 1.8 second incident, which is inexcusable. You cannot quit on your team. But I think the fact that Scotty is as beloved of a teammate as he is to this day, and Will can speak to this, um, um, Ken will play with him in 3 4 yeah, 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 he was he, yeah. was, he was yeah. great. So for the I, I talked to Tony Kukoc, and Tony raved about how much he made his friends. So to, to the fact that he overcame that and is that beloved of a teammate, I personally think this, the slant through eight episodes has been a little bit more negative. And, guys, I mean, I'm not going out of limb here. The Bulls aren't six-time champions without Scotty Pippenies. No, no way, no way. Oh, you're exactly right, KC. And, you know, the one thing that the director has told me there is uh, – uh, apparently in 9 and 10, there will be some more light shed on, you know, Scottie Pippen in a, in a positive manner. Man. Now, how much he didn't Did share. you just get that while he was talking, Will? Did you just text him? <laughs> no, oh, he, he was on the radio today. The radio today. I mean, he, he's uh, – Jason's been all over the place talking about this because I asked him on the air, so this isn't like private information. It went, went out on the air because I said the same thing that KC said. You know, a guy – I just – you know, I don't. I, I guess the term is a day late and a dollar short, and people are gonna be like, "Oh yeah, but he's been one of the top 50 players of all time." But I still think he was better than people think, and people know him as. I think that unfortunately for Scotty, because of all those things that have happened to him, and he brought those things on himself. Unfortunately, you know. Yeah, like he was put. It kind of glossed was, over the fact that what he was third in MVP that year. Yeah, uh, but I think if you go back and really focus. And I've, you know, what we've been doing here at NBC Sports Chicago is we've been doing post-game shows after each series, after they beat the Nets, and then after they beat the Hornets, and after they beat um, 
you know, uh, the Pacers. Now, take the finals out of it because he was hurt, and that really hurt his statistical uh, numbers. Yeah. But if you take those first three series, if you look across the board, he didn't necessarily shoot very well and score a lot of points, but look at the rebounds. Look at the assists. Look at the steals. He was the primary ball handler. I know Michael was the leading scorer, but was he actually more important to this team throughout the big picture? Not just against Utah in the finals, but I'm talking about you know getting to the finals. What he was able to do as a player was he kind of like more of the kind of like when Iguodala got the MVP with Golden State. I, I kind of looked at you know the way he was playing and the things he was asked to do. He was the MVP till they got, in my opinion, up to playing. Um, you know, Utah in the finals again. So I, I hope that they show some more of that. To what extent, I don't know. But, you know, as Steve Kerr said, as I have said, you know, in the documentary, and as Kendall has, you know, just uh, said in KC, he was beloved by his teammates because of just who he was, his personality, how easygoing he was. And, you, you know, you always felt like he appreciated anything that you did with him or for him. Yeah, Kendall, what are you looking forward to in nine, nine and ten? The end. I want to see. <laughs> I, I, no, no, not 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 saying not saying the end because I'm ready for it to be over with. I want to see the end. Whether they were are relieved that this is over, you know, because then that that will really tell answer my question about them. This dynasty really naturally coming to an end, you know, because. We all saw how Michael, after the third championship, they said that it was just relief. Will, you were there, right? Yeah. The third championship. It was relief. It wasn't so much joy. That's what Paxson said in the documentary. I want to see if it's the same thing that you guys felt in the third championship. Well, I, I will say this. Going back to 93, that was a hard year, man. I mean, it's – we had more conversations throughout that season about how difficult this is, how much, you know, it's the drama, the tension is taking the fun out of it. It wasn't a game anymore. That's when I really learned that it was a true business, you know, just constantly. And listen, this is me, not Michael, not Scotty, not Horace. This is me talking about dealing with the media, me constantly always being in demand, me, you know, not being – able just to kind of live a, a normal life, the demands that were put on us. And this is what Michael wanted. You know, he said, listen, Larry couldn't do this. Magic couldn't do this. This is what I want to do. Let's win the third in a row. And, the, I, you know, the relief of everybody. I, I think I literally, the first two, I think I partied for like weeks. On this <laughs> one, I think I slept for weeks. It was just, okay. it was just different. Yeah. Yeah, I almost felt like the end of episode uh, seven, I want to say. Well, first of all, we haven't even talked about when he was crying on the floor with the ball after winning the title without his father. I had never heard the audio of that before. Have you guys? No, I've never heard the audio either. Oh, my. That just – that was incredible. Like, I, 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 I almost had to pause. I had to stop the thing because hearing him – suck in air just to gasp for air uh, on the floor there so emotional after losing his father and winning the championship that was like that's when you know that like when you get this behind the scenes footage and sometimes you see him on the floor but you don't actually hear it 
uh, it's so much more impactful. I don't know if you guys felt the same way or if, or if it was just me. Uh, no, I mean, you, no, you, I mean, it, it happened on Father's Day and, uh, you know, the, the, you could tell he's just thinking about his dad, you know, and uh, his dad had never, uh, well, his dad hadn't seen him play in the, in the, in the uh, second three feet. And, you know, he had tried to climb the mountaintop when he first came back, failed, and then finally got back on the mountaintop. And I'm, I'm sure his dad was a driving force in that. Yep. I mean, the relationship he had with his father was, you know, I've talked about this a couple times. It's, you know, you don't want to say something that because it, it makes people think you didn't have a great relationship with your father, but it was something that you at times could say you were jealous of because, you know, that's how close they were. And then the other thing is that I like to say and tell people is how nice and accommodating, you know, Michael's dad was to us as his teammates. You know, quite honestly, there were a lot of us that had better relationships with his dad than we had with him. Is that right? When practice was over, Michael was gone. His dad would hang around to talk with us, to rebound for us, to, you know, if you're shooting free throws, he'd run out there and get the ball and bounce it back to you. And next oh, thing wow. you know, you're, you're sitting in the locker room having a conversation with him or on the training room getting treatment. He's just sitting there talking and then you'll be like, hey, what's, you know, what are you doing? He's like, just, he just loved to socialize. I mean, he was a social animal and he always knew that, yes. yeah, I can go back home later. I know where to find my son, but, you know, I just like hanging out with you guys. It's, I'm just a normal Joe. Yeah, he was. I, he, Mr. Jordan went out to, to I, I went out to dinner with he and my and my granddad once, and he he's sitting there talking to us just like he's known us for thirty years, you know. And uh, he he was a genuine, down to earth guy, just like you said, Will. Man, I'm I'm excited for nine and ten. It's. Um... It's coming to a close. You guys will have a recap show after 9 and 10 next Sunday, correct? Yeah, we will. Yeah. Um, so everyone listen to this. Definitely check that out. Um, it's amazing. We haven't even talked about the Jazz at all during the eight, eight episodes. So they're going to pack in a lot of Pacers here, and they're going to pack in a lot of uh, Utah Jazz stuff with Jeff Hornacek and uh, John Stockton and Carl Malone. And, and their big moment we haven't even talked about is the food game. So – We'll see. We'll see what happens there. Um, but you know, Tom, here's something for you. As much joy as I've had watching this, I can only imagine with two episodes left. And I mean, quite honestly, you wonder, you know, a couple bad bounces, a couple bad calls by the officials in that game six and 98. If they had to go to a game seven, like Kendall was talking about, I, I kind of, as I've watched this, start to wonder. Would they even have enough gas in the tank to win a game seven? Because yeah. then you don't know about the health of, you know, Scottie Pippen. That that's just how difficult this was. And, you know, I've looked at this through rose-colored glasses. If I was a member of that Utah Jazz team in 98, I am not looking forward to next weekend at all because that's got to bring up some really yeah. bad memories. Yes, playing and be, having the ability to win a championship. But bringing up the Isley, uh, you know, three that they called that was no good, even though if you go back and look, he shot it well before the 24-second shot clock expired. The Ron Harper basket that should have been no good. You know, the timing of those things make you think that if that would have been, you know, 
if they would have had replay and gone back and been able to correct those mistakes and the timing of those mistakes and how that would have changed the game at that moment, there would have been a game seven. And who knows what would have happened at that point? Because I think, as Kendall said, I think the Bulls were running on fumes. Yeah, I can't wait to see how the, the story ends on this. Because I really thought when Michael was talking about, you know, when he got emotional talking about, uh, you know, being a nice guy and stuff, I thought that was going to be the end of the series. Like, I thought that moment was a great way to end the, the whole series. And then you're like, there's so much more that we haven't gotten into yet. But I thought that would have yeah. been such a, a, a great close was just him talking about, you know, his legacy as a winner and the cost of that. Um, but, yeah, so much to get into. Um, and I, I, the, the talking trash stuff, like the episode seven, uh, in many ways was the best episode for me because you really got to see what he was like, the cost of winning and the, and the cost of what it was like to be his teammate. Um, you know, I, I almost wish that was a little earlier in the, sh in the series just to get that, get that feeling of what he was like to his teammates. But, um, you know, we're, we got nine and 10 coming up. Uh, can't wait to see it. And uh, thank you so much for joining uh, the show. And um, look, KC, I don't know how you're doing. You got like an MJ role here. You know, the fact that you've been reporting <laughs> on, on the Bulls front office and then doing this stuff, it's been incredible to watch. So everyone go follow KCJ Hoops um, on Twitter and go follow his work. And Kendall, man, I just saw a clip of you boxing earlier on Twitter today. You were no joke. Cool. Oh, thanks, man. I, you know, actually, I'm about to go spar with my son in a few minutes as soon as I get off of here. So I got to get my skills ready, <laughs> get my head moving, you know. <laughs> hey, so, Tom, last, last thing. We did a podcast last week. And as you mentioned, KC's all over the place. Like, literally in the middle of the podcast, he's like, man, my phone's blowing up. Stories are breaking. I got to go. And he just left. He yeah, he did. The podcast. <laughs> It was like MJ. He just he just straight up leave. And you couldn't do anything about it. What what hey, Casey, we were doing Casey, the pod, Casey? Casey any Casey any big can't news? can't go anywhere right now. He has to lock himself in his hotel suite. Look, <laughs> luckily the the Bulls front office news has slowed down. So uh, that was back during that that old stuff. So I I had a phone call I had to take. I didn't know if we had any boiling news. Uh, I won't. No, go I mean it's going to happen at some point. I just don't know when. Hey, two quick things for me and then I'm done. Will, it was Byron Houston. I didn't even look it up. That's who you're talking about, right? Oh, yeah, Byron Houston. No, it wasn't Byron oh. Houston. It was another. It was a guard. Oh. And then, Kendall, you, when you were running down your championships, you forgot 1984 Big Dipper tournament. <laughs> the Big Dipper, you right. What Kendall and I played to? against each other in high school, Tom. So, uh, <laughs> wow. He, I'm he, a, hey, hey I'm a, I got ten rings. I know. <laughs> Kendall was a star. I was like an eighth man, but uh, Kendall and I played against each other in the Big Dipper tournament in 84, baby. So there you go. That's When's right. the 10-part series coming out about that? Uh, next year. <laughs> uh, we've we held it for 30 years now. so you know. Did you have to green light it? Yeah, I got to green light it. I got to edit it and all that. Love it. <laughs> all right, Thanks, fellas. Tom. Appreciate you. Stay right, safe, guys. okay? Thanks, all right, that'll do it for this week's episode of the Haber Show podcast. I want to thank Casey, Kendall, and Will for joining me. Go listen to their recap podcast that they do every week right after the episodes end on Sundays, the Bulls Talk podcast uh, episode recaps. Uh, thank you so much for listening. Go tell your friends to subscribe, rate, and review. Um, and if you haven't gotten enough MJ stories, definitely check out J.A. Adande previously on the podcast. And also... 
Pablo Torre join me on the show. He's got lots of thoughts about the documentary from an editorial standpoint, and we talk about being fathers. All right, until next time on The Haber Show. <laughs>